Civil Servants are the latest group to have said they're going out on strike. They'll be on strike on the 1st of February. 100,000 of them, gonna be big. Today though, we're talking about a group of workers on strike as we speak, the ambulance workers. And I'll be speaking to someone who is taking strike action today. Plenty of other stories for you tonight. I'm gonna let them come as a surprise. We've got loads coming up. Six, we got a bit carried away today in the studio, I think. I'm joined by Dahlia. Dahlia, how are you doing? Good. I've been, uh, I've had quite a slow day today. Been like lowering the tone of my life by reading snippets of Harry's memoir on um, Twitter. So this will hopefully kind of bring me back into the serious world because I've had a very unserious day. <laughs> Am I allowed to say this, Dahlia, that you messaged me at about 5 p.m. saying, are we not going to talk about Harry? I know. I had so many, like, I just had so, I just, it's purely selfish. I just wanted to gossip. We talked about it last Friday. I'm just kind of, I, I feel like I can't be bothered to, it's not even like a political judgment. Like I don't want to use up Tisky time talking about it. It's just I can't bother to watch the interviews. So I'm not up to date on it. Maybe something will happen that grabs my attention in, in the coming days. Ambulance workers are currently out on a 24-hour strike. The dispute is over pay and conditions. The government offered ambulance workers a 4.75% pay rise last year. But the unions argue that isn't nearly enough to offset the rising cost of living with inflation, having hit 11% in 2022. But ambulance workers have also expressed concern over the broader crisis in the NHS and falling standards of patient safety. Data from NHS England shows that ambulance response and waiting times in November hit the worst level seen in the country since records began. That's due to understaffing and a lack of hospital beds, meaning that ambulances aren't able to transfer their patients. Instead, they have to wait outside hospitals until there's space, which means the ambulance isn't free to respond to other emergencies. An ambulance worker on strike in Gateshead summarised the situation like this. Can't work like this anymore. The government needs to see that the NHS needs investment. Um, the NHS is broken. The NHS is broken. The staff are broken. It's every time you come to work, it's like, what next? You know, our patients are suffering. We're queuing for hours on end in A and E. Um, we can be here twelve hours, but only do two see two patients because we're queuing for five, six hours with each patient. Something's got to happen. Something we need help. Over in Westminster, the ambulance dispute has become tied up in a debate over proposed minimum service laws for strike days. And when he introduced that legislation to Parliament yesterday, Grant Shapps made a dig at the ambulance unions. A lack of timely cooperation from the ambulance unions meant employers could not reach agreement nationally for minimum safety levels during recent strikes. And health officials were left guessing at the likely minimum coverage, making contingency planning almost impossible and putting everyone's constituents' lives at risk. The ambulance strike plan for tomorrow still, still do not have minimum safety levels in place. And this will result in patchy emergency care for the British people, and this cannot continue. Rishi Sunak made a similar point this afternoon at PMQs. But he talks about what's terrifying, Mr. Speaker. What's terrifying is right now, what's terrifying is that right now, people not knowing whether when they call 999, they will get the treatment that they need. Now, Mr. Speaker, in, in Australia, in Australia and Canada and the US, they ban strikes on blue light services. We're not doing that. All we're saying is that in these emergency services, patients should be able to rely on a basic level of life-saving care. Why is he against that, Mr. Speaker? There's not a minimum level of service any day because they've broken the NHS. That was Keir Starmer's response. We can play you now the response to the government from the two unions that represent the ambulance workforce. This was what Rachel Harrison from the GMB had to say. I can guarantee you that GMB local teams and representatives across the country have worked around the clock with local employers to make sure that emergency procedures are in place. On the last strike day, what we actually saw was paramedics, emergency care assistants and others leaving the picket lines to go and attend to emergencies. So our members do not want to put lives at risk. But what they're saying to us is lives are being put at risk every single day, regardless of the strikes. Speaking to the BBC, this was the General Secretary of Unison, Christina McEnay. 
I find it quite appalling that at a time when we've been calling for safe staffing levels in the NHS, it seems that the only time the country will get safe staffing levels if the government bring this legislation in is when we actually take strike action. Is that the message they want to send out? Because that's what that's the message is at the moment. People have had an appalling service in the NHS. It's utter chaos at the moment. And that's including the ambulance service. So to talk now about bringing in minimum standards and minimum staffing levels is a total distraction. They're trying to distract from their inability to run the NHS. The statistics appear to back McInay up. The Office for National Statistics has this week revealed that, far the pandemic, Britain is experiencing its highest levels of excess deaths since 1951. In 2022, 50,000 more people died than usual in the UK. In the Christmas week alone, there were 1,600 more deaths than would be expected at that time of year. Now, causes for excess deaths are hard to determine. We have experienced a bad wave of flu and the after effects of COVID are difficult to pass. But medics have been clear that the current crisis in the NHS is doing serious damage. This is what the president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine had to say. Our own analysis indicates that an estimated 300 to 500 patients are dying per week across the UK associated with long waiting times in emergency departments. This is awful, distressing and completely unacceptable. The health system is not functioning as it should. Earlier, I spoke to George Solomon, an ambulance worker on strike today. I began by asking him why he feels strike action is necessary. The last uh, 10 years, we've seen a dramatic impact on our work, the way we work, how we work. Um, ambulances are waiting two, three, four hours outside of hospitals because they can't get patients in. And, you know, the anger you can sense from the patients it literally can warm your hands on it. And, like, we try to explain to them why this is all happening, the cuts uh, the government has brought in, uh, the lack of staff and so forth. And, you know, it, the pressure has got so much. And when you're not getting a decent salary to compensate you for a job, which inevitably will lead to you having musculoskeletal problems and mental health problems because it's the nature of the job. You don't deal with high-stress situations for most of your life and not have a repercussion on your, yourself. You feel you're being cheated and, and basically downgraded as a human being by this government that doesn't really value you and mocks you with some clapping episode during COVID. I mean, we've all heard the statistics about how long people are having to wait now for ambulances, how all the targets are essentially being missed. Could you talk about how, from a personal perspective, from a worker's perspective, you know, how, how does that feel? How does your day-to-day -day experience of working in the ambulance service, how has that changed now to say, well, before the pandemic and then, I suppose, before the Tory government's entered? Well, I've been doing the job 20 years, so that's quite a long time. In the last seven years, uh, we've literally become the gatekeepers for the NHS. Uh, what we do basically now from day to day is actually re-triage the patients before they even get to the hospital. And what I mean by that is we, we're constantly having pathways which we can send patients down. For example, if a patient doesn't have the correct pain relief, uh, he's got used to their pain relief, and we realise that the hospital isn't the best place for him, we phone their GP, we arrange uh, appointments for them maybe to go to a pain management clinic. Alternatively, if it's an old lady, male, female, who's fallen and hurt themselves, but the injury isn't serious, we can organise a district nurse or we can organise a discussion with the falls team who will come in and uh, check their home for trip hazards, uh, arouse on beds and so forth like that. I mean, it has got to that point where we're, we're doing a totally different job from 20 years ago, absolutely different. So before your job, I suppose, was to keep a patient safe while they were on their way to a hospital. Now, a big part of your job is to try and keep that patient away from the hospital, partly because you know it's completely overwhelmed. Can we talk about the negotiations that are currently ongoing between the union and the government and the NHS employer? I mean, from your perspective, what kind of deal would be acceptable when you, I mean, I know there's not, you're not being balloted on a sort of proposed agreement at the moment, but when, if you are balloted on a proposed agreement, what will you be looking out for in particular? I mean, to answer that question, I really have to say what we have lost. I mean, 
for us to get uh, back to our 2010 salary, we need to get a 15% uh, pay increase because we've lost so much. With uh, Every year they promised us something and they never delivered. So it would take a 15% pay rise, which basically is very similar to what the nursing unions are asking for. The rate of inflation and 5% on top. That's what we want and that's what we're determined to get. What do you think about the relationship between the government and ambulance workers at the moment? I mean, do you feel like they've kind of gone to war with you guys? The government has taken off their gloves. They're, they're not pussyfooting around with this strike. They want to break us. They're misleading the general public, saying that it can be generally, oh, it's a structural thing, the changing of rotors may be, uh, you know, an increase in staffing level here, increases. That's not true. I mean, when you've lost 100,000 nurses out of the system, you lost 25,000 beds out of the, the hospitals and wards have been shut. You know, you're you 5,000 doctors in A&E short. You, you know, you're 5,000 GPs short. You know, this isn't about structural change. This is about a massive lack of investment that is now coming to roost. And this government is totally guilty of that. Moving on. Andrew Bridgen is a Tory MP who was recently suspended from Parliament for breaking lobbying rules. He also has an interest in scaremongering and conspiracy theories involving COVID vaccines. And that led him to tweet a report suggesting the vaccine had caused various health complications, couching it in this pretty shocking comparison. So he said, as one consultant cardiologist said to me, this is the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. Now, he's since deleted that tweet, but not before the Tories removed the whip. And that led to this exchange between former Health Secretary Matt Hancock and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that the disgusting, anti-Semitic, anti-vax conspiracy theories that have been promulgated online this morning are not only deeply offensive, but anti-scientific and have no place in this house or in our wider society? Can I join with my right honourable friend in completely condemning those types of comments that we saw this morning in the strongest possible terms? Obviously, it is utterly unacceptable to make linkages and use language like that. And I'm determined that the scourge of anti-Semitism is eradicated. It has absolutely no place in our society. And I know that the previous few years have been challenging for the Jewish community, and I never want them to experience anything like that ever again. I think that was probably a cheap dig at the Labour Party, that sort of latter claim made by Rishi Sunak. But Dahlia, let's focus on Andrew Bridgen and the bizarre comment com comparing vaccines to the Holocaust. I mean, watching that, my main thought was, look, we talk all the time about how bad the Conservatives are. They are. They've destroyed the fabric of our social life. I cannot forgive them for that. But I watched that clip and I'm like, well, at least they're not the Republicans. You know, the, 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 there is still one thing that separates the US Republicans from our Conservative Party, which is that you know, there is a broad consensus against batshit conspiracy theories about things such as vaccines and even things such as climate change. I mean, am I being, am I being overly kind to our domestic centre-right? Yeah, I mean, I think that in this instance, we don't have the same problem with the US. I think in other areas, it's sort of more under the surface, particularly when it comes to sort of racism, when it comes to anti-abortion stuff. You know, a lot of these things, they might not say publicly, but there is sort of privately on a more low key level, some like serious issues there. But yeah, I think, you know, it's, we are really lucky that unlike in the US, we didn't have in this country, this huge sort of anti-vax contingent within parliament, because, you know, we had a really shambolic response for many reasons. We had shambolic track and trace infrastructure. We had um, shambolic social distancing. We were way too late on lockdowns. We were way too late when it came to, you know, disseminating information. Um, we had a healthcare system that was so cut to the bone that it couldn't really handle the shock of the pandemic. And so literally our only saving grace was the fact that we had good vaccine rollout and good vaccine uptake. And that was in part because it was run by the NHS and not a private contractor, but also because even though we did have in the media some kind of anti-vax voices, for sure. And there was, a, you know, a anti-vax movement that, you know, did take to the streets occasionally. When it came to our political class, they were pretty, they were pretty united. And so that was, that, that really was a saving grace for us. And so it's very good that, that he is somewhat anomalous in his public anti-vaxxing 
stance. But obviously, I mean, it goes without saying that when it comes to that ridiculous chart that he showed, which, you know, said, oh, these are all the potential impacts of the vaccine. It goes without saying we shouldn't have to say it again. But COVID has a lot higher risk of long term disabling impacts, you know, whether it's neurologically organ failure, long COVID, fatigue, the actual overall impact of COVID on the body is very unknown. And so this idea that the vaccine should be avoided because it has, you know, it's untested or has, you know, quote unquote, unknown long term effects, which, you know, it is tested It is a medically, you know, a scientifically approved vaccine. That just simply is, is not a reason to not get it because COVID itself is a very unknown entity when it comes to the kind of long-term impacts on your body, especially if you have it multiple times and you have it within, in its full-blown, unprotected way. Basic scientific literacy, I wouldn't expect Conservative MPs to be able to grasp such a, such a simple fact. <laughs> I was thinking about why, why it is that at least the political establishment here is a bit more immune to the kind of crazy vaccine crankery than they have in the United States. I think probably the biggest variable is we don't have Fox News, but GB News wants to be our Fox News. So if you ever turn on GB News at the moment, they have the kind of bizarre vaccine crankery calling Fauci, you know, like a global conspiracy leader who's committing crimes against humanity. Very, very similar to Fox News. So if they were to get as big as Fox is in America, then I'd be worried. Let's just pray to God they do not because... I think we take for granted that we don't have some of the more sort of pernicious anti-science popular movements that they have in the United States, but that could change if something like GB News gets gets as big, I suppose, as they they want to be. From one Tory MP to another, the government's proposed anti-strike legislation has had its first debate in Parliament. The proposed bill would enable employers to force workers to break a strike to ensure that a minimum level of service is maintained. Sectors that could be affected include the health services, fire and rescue and transport, but the proposed law would also limit the right of teachers to strike. It follows a national education union ballot of its members, which closes on Friday and is expected to result in the biggest industrial action by teachers in many years. Primary and secondary teachers in Scotland are already on strike. Now, among those in favour of the new anti-strike laws was Tory MP Jonathan Gullis. He had this to say about teachers and the NEU. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. May I proudly put on the record my register of interest as a former teacher and a former trade union member and representative for the NASUWT. Mr Deputy Speaker, I am very worried about seeing teachers going on strike because it's the pupils that will suffer the most, particularly disadvantaged pupils from areas like Stoke-on-Trent North Kids Grave and Talk on. Whilst I am a huge admirer of incredible work teachers do, they are sadly being cajoled by barren bosses in unions like the Not Education Union, led by Bolshevik Balsen and Commie Courtney, with their Labour mates to force teachers out of the classroom and make sure that kids continue to suffer. What can we do to make sure pupils will not be victims any further? What Gull is too busy screeching about commies and Bolsheviks seems to be missing is how grossly the Tories have degraded education in the last 12 years. A Guardian article just this week reported this. According to a Labour analysis of Department for Education statistics of just under 270,000 teachers who qualified in England between 2011 and 2020, more than 81,000 have since left the profession, or three in 10 of the total. More recently, 13% of teachers in England who have qualified since the last general election in December 2019 quit in the subsequent two years, about 3,000 in total. So why have a third of teachers who qualified after 2010 left the profession? One answer is falling pay. This graph is from the Financial Times. It shows how teachers' pay has fallen dramatically in England since 2010 when the Tories came to power. Head teachers have seen their real terms pay fall by about 5%. Meanwhile, classroom teachers have had to swallow a real terms cut of over 10%. Teachers in leadership positions felt a 10% cut, as have all teachers averaged out. That's the grey line there. It's not just salaries that are driving teachers to strike action, though. Over the last 12 years, the amount of money allocated per pupil to state education has also fallen. This graph from the Institute for Fiscal Studies shows how the gap between the amount of money spent on state and independent school pupils has changed. During the Blair and Brown years, per pupil funding in the state sector grew at the same rate as per pupil 
in the private sector. And in 2010, the average per pupil spend was £8,000 in the state sector. But after the Tories took over, that all changed. Private per head funding continued to grow, but state per head funding fell. By 2020, state school pupils were only being funded to the tune of £7,000 per head. And the gap between state and private school spending has more than doubled. That drop in funding has created even harder working conditions for state school teachers. The I newspaper spoke to a secondary teacher in Cambridgeshire who said this, My payslip is contracted to 32 hours a week, but I work more than 45 hours. I'm a teacher who doesn't do work at home, but there are so many for whom that's not the case. It's really a problem of staff shortages, which is heavily linked to funding, although we do find it much more difficult to recruit because people aren't going for the jobs. I feel as a sort of minimum, we should have the time we need to do our jobs well. Everyone is just really stretched. The children's standard of education is lower than when I started five years ago because I don't have the time that I would like to teach them as I'd like to. The classes are massive, literally not enough chairs or tables in the classroom, which means I'm not able to give them the time and attention they need. And I'm not able to give my lesson planning the time it needs. And that is because I want to have a break when I get home. That seems fair enough to me. No teachers take going on strike lightly. Certainly, I don't. For me, it will be a last course of action, but the situation we are in is not sustainable. And if you're going to look at the bigger picture, which is about where is education going, then a more drastic form of action is needed for things to change. That was Laura, a secondary school teacher who is presumably both a Bolshevik and a commie. And that's if we take MP Gullis at his word. This is part of a, a kind of broader McCarthyite attack on education systems. We've been seeing it in the higher education sector um, where I work, and we're also now seeing it in, in the schooling sector. And that kind of McCarthyist red scare attack always goes for education systems. It goes for schools. It goes for universities. Why? Because these are spaces where that really heavily shape how we go on to interact with the world. They're one of the few places that we have in our society that are supposed to be dedicated to developing critical faculties, to intellectually exploring, you know, different ways of thinking. Now, it's not always able to do that because of the conditions that are forced onto it. But theoretically, it has the potential to do that. And so that's why the education system is always in the particularly the state education system, which is, you know, obviously for more working class kids, is always in the crosshairs um, of conservative governments in particular. And most teachers that I've spoken to have said that, you know, first of all, the ability to use school as a space to develop critical thinking skills has become really difficult because of these conditions, not only because the curriculum has gotten narrower and more rigid. You know, Michael Gove, one of the first things he did as education secretary um, way back in 2010, I think it was with the coalition government rather than when they got the majority. Um, one of the first things he did was, you know, went for the history curriculum, went for English curriculum, really tried to strangle the scope with which teachers could explore and be creative and use their flair with the curriculum. Teachers don't have time to do the kind of extra, both pastoral work, but also, you know, creative. Everyone has that teacher that really changed the way they think about things. And that involves having a level of like time and space and resources to inject your own creativity into how you teach a particular subject. That kind of part of teaching has been completely strangled out. And that's quite an ideological part of austerity. And it's an ideological attack on what schooling should be for, that it shouldn't be this thing where we develop people's ability to critically analyze the world around them. And, you know, this kind of really cheap attack calling striking teachers, commies and Bolsheviks is really kind of part of that paranoia about what is going on in schools, particularly what's going on in state schools. And I'll just finish with saying that we have to remember that so a disproportionate number of particularly conservative MPs have their children in, in private schools and themselves went to private schools. For them having a completely bare bones, destroyed, um, comprehensive education sector works in their favor because it widens the gap between state educated kids and privately educated kids. So it gives them more bang for their buck of what they're paying for when they go to private, when they send their kids to private school, which is a competitive edge over working class kids. They're trying to put down 
working class kids so that their kid will always look better no matter what. And so this is both like an ideological political attack and both in the sense of it's reducing the scope for teachers to engage with their kids to not just, you know, give their kids like information, but actually develop critical faculties. And it's also a way of widening that gap between the class of people who can go to private school, who can send their kids to private school and everyone else. You know, watching that from Jonathan Gullis, it's just you have to be so stupid to think that or so shameless to say it if you don't, if he knows he's lying, right? Because like what you'll often hear from the stories is you, they talk about industrial action as if there's this small cabal of very ideologically motivated people who are forcing good, honest, decent workers to go out on strike when actually they don't want to be. Now, what that ignores is you have a ballot, right? So there will be a negotiation for pay increases or over conditions, and then workers will be balloted. And by the way, because of Tory laws passed in the 2010s, the threshold for going on strike is now really, really high. You have to have 40% of all eligible employees voting. Yes, the turnout threshold is high, really, really difficult to get. People are still managing because they're pissed off, by the way. But they're not managing to get 40% of a workforce to vote in favor of strikes because they're all Bolshies or communists. No, this is an entire workforce of thousands of people who want to go on strike. Why? Because they've had pay cuts of 10% over 10 years and their workload is increasing. Now, what rational person who gets a pay cut of 10% and gets their workload increased and also has less satisfaction from their work because they're seeing that the, you know, the product they are creating, educated kids, is becoming harder because of funding cuts? What, what rational person wouldn't go on strike in those circumstances? And so to suggest that there's some sort of like ideological revolutionary motive for people to not want 10% pay cuts and decreased conditions, it's just, you know, it's so... It, it's, it, I struggle to work out what's going on in that guy's head. Like, either he is so disingenuous and so shameless that he knows what he's saying is bullshit and he's saying it anyway, or he is just very, very dense, right? Because it, it, you don't need a complicated explanation. You don't need to look into the history of Kevin Courtney or Mary Boosted, the the general, the joint general secretaries of the NEU. And by the way, I don't, I don't really know the political histories of those two people. But it's not particularly relevant. If teachers vote to go on strike, the reason they will have voted to go on strike is because they are protesting the fact that they've been treated like shit for 12 years. I talk about this all the time on show. I have endless respect for teachers. I was a TA for a couple of years before I went into journalism. And my big takeaway from it, TAs and teaching assistant, they work really goddamn hard. That's why I didn't become a teacher. They work too hard for me, right? The hours are long and you have to be on it all the time because it's always you standing in front of 30 kids and you have to be on it all the time because this is why I was not a very good TA. Every now and again, I'd be like, come on, guys, come on, kids. Uh, there's two ways we could do this. You know, I could be really strict and make you do that. Or we could just all talk reasonably to each other and look at this rap that I sort of, this lesson that I designed for you. I got destroyed every time. Right? You have to be on it all the time. You can't have any down moments. So these people should get paid really goddamn well because it is a really, really hard, tiring job. And, you know, Jonathan Gullis is trying to say, I'm a teacher, I know about this, I was a union rep. You're also an idiot. If you think that the reason they're going to go on strike is because they're commies and Bolsheviks, you're an idiot. So I don't care what your previous job was, everything you say is now discounted of value from my perspective. Let's go on to our next story. Carol Malone is a TV presenter who sometimes appears on The Jeremy Vine Show. And that's where she completely lost it over ambulance workers' strikes. These strikers and union bosses are weaponizing frailty and sickness to get more money in their pay packet. Withdrawal of labor in the health service is an archaic bludgeoning tool to get more money. And it's and you cannot do that in vital services like healthcare. You know, this is these journalists and strikers, they're engaging, it's 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 emotional blackmail. That's what it is. It's emotional black, and they're exploiting their monopoly that they have and their and the sent sentimentality around the NHS. Yes, it's, you know, we've got to stop pretending that the ambulance workers are badly paid. They are not badly paid. Average, the NHS says the average pay is 34,300 with their on social hours allowance, with their overtime supplements, all the rest of it. They can go to 47,000. Let's, let's talk. Let's that talk. is not a bad pay. No, they are not holding patients. They are, they are not they holding. Are. They are not blackmailing patients. Yes, they're they are. using their legitimate right to strike that is entirely in the law. Everything you mentioned. Hang on a minute, Carol. Let me just finish. Okay. 
We have already had reform of strike laws. Mm -hmm. They are in the right place, in my opinion. You need to have a minimum number of union members voting, taking part in the ballot. Then they have to reach a minimum uh, level in yeah. order to take uh, union action. Withdrawing your labor is an extreme- It's an archaic it bludgeoning an tool in the health of The idea that we're being held hostage by health workers, like they, thank God they trained to be health workers so they can, support us you know it's, it's not like they're not stopping other people to become health workers everyone who trains to become a health worker almost everyone who trains to become a health worker now wants to go on strike because they're being treated so poorly the only emotional blackmail being done there is from carol malone who's saying um because your job is valuable more valuable than her job or my job you should feel so guilty about asserting your rights that you you work without complaint that's that's the moral blackmail there and it's also weird to think of strikes as archaic so you think workers' rights should belong to history. Oh, it's so archaic, this idea that you might strike to improve your own conditions. Not sure about that. On pay, this is a bit more complex. Malone is right about paramedic pay on one sense, according to the Nuffield Trust, if fully qualified, the average wage of paramedics is about £47,000 per year, but that's when including overtime. So actually, their salaries haven't been damaged as much as other people in the NHS because their working patterns are so reliant on overtime. Their salaries, though, are still expected to drop by 4% over the next year. And the ambulance service also involves 25,000 support staff, as well as ambulance workers who aren't paramedics. Across all ambulance workers, real terms annual salaries had only risen by £91 between 2010 and spring last year. And that's, of course, now been completely wiped out by inflation. Crucially, also, and this is really important, broader dissatisfaction among ambulance staff has long threatened a crisis in the surface. So the Nuffield Trust have reported this. One in 10 paramedics, that's 1,760 people, left active service in the year to June 2022, exceeding the number of joiners in the same period. Over one in four paramedics reported that they would leave their role as soon as they could find another job. This compares to less than one in five nurses signaling the same intention. The working experiences of paramedics have been a long-standing concern compared to other staff groups. They have consistently lower levels of satisfaction, which have deteriorated further in the last year. Staff are increasingly frustrated at being unable to provide an adequate service for patients with Category 1 life-threatening calls waiting 9 minutes 56 seconds on average compared to the target of 7 minutes. For Category 2 calls, such as for heart attack or stroke, the average waiting time now exceeds one hour against a target of 18 minutes. Now that report on you know the, the state of the workforce in the ambulance service, very interesting from the Nuffield Trust. Basically the picture they're painting is that on pay, paramedics have not had a good time. You know, your your wage is rising by 91 quid over um 13 years. That's historically terrible, appalling. But on when it comes to pay, they haven't been dealt such as bad a blow as nurses and doctors, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But they are still even more dissatisfied. So that shows you something is going really wrong in the service. Now, presumably, that's because of the amount of overtime they're being asked to do, that they're being understaffed, that they're having to wait for hours to unload patients. So whereas before they would answer sort of five to six calls a day, now it's only two. They see that they're not doing their job badly. They're not doing their job well because they're not able to do their job well. That's very demoralizing. Of course it is. And so lots of people want to leave the service. Basically, what you have here is Carol Malone, who's never worked, you know, a shift in her life as an ambulance worker, given this national platform to talk about what it's like to be an ambulance worker and what ambulance workers do and don't deserve. And she very cynically is deliberately illiterate with, with her statistics. Like she takes this one figure, which is, you know, the salary number for a specific group of people who work in the work in, in the ambulance workforce, rips it from its context and uses it to undermine what an entire industry is saying. And, you know, it, it's one, it would be one thing if she was saying this, you know, on her dining table or in the comfort of her own home or yelling it at the TV but she's not. She's being given this elevated national platform where it's being broadcast to thousands of people. And it's it's incredibly frustrating because when a workforce goes on strike, they are communicating to us that something is not OK. Like the workforce is not 
okay. And do you know how they know that? Like where they get that information from? It's not from decontextualized statistics. It's not from, you know, whatever agenda they might have, you know, and Carol Malone was very clear there. You know, she talked about the sentimentality around the NHS, the monopoly of the NHS. She's kind of hinting there what she really feels, which is that the NHS is a public service, you know, as a nationalized service shouldn't exist. But that that's, you know, another, a whole other conversation. But the people who are actually going on strike and organizing in this way, they know that these conditions are a problem because they're there. They're in the field. Unlike Carol Malone, they actually live those conditions every day. And, you know, MPs, renter gobs, management consultants, they aren't like they aren't in a position to undermine what this industry, what this workforce as a collective is saying. Because let's not forget, this isn't about one or two paramedics. This isn't about, you know, just like individuals talking. This is a collective action. This is, you know, about what a collective industry has voted democratically to do. You know, and I personally, I don't know a single healthcare worker that doesn't think that our system is not fit for purpose. And so I would say that this is, you know, we know that this is the representative position of people working in this field. So, you know, it's not emotional blackmail. It's not bludgeoning. It's not archaic. It's living in the real world and seeing what needs to happen in the real world. And, you know, it's very clear that that, that the real world is not a place that Carol Malone lives in. But yeah, I think this is like a deep systemic problem with our media of like who is given platform to influence around things that are this important. This isn't just a matter of opinion. This is the our healthcare system. And when our healthcare system is not fit for purpose, it has real consequences. Like people die, people get sick. And that that's really serious. It's much more serious than Carol Malone. I also love the way that above average wages come into the debate whenever it comes to industrial action. Because, you know, if you have a conversation about pay in the banking sector or pay of MPs, for example, what you'll hear from conservatives is, look, these are highly qualified people. We've got to attract them into this industry. Otherwise, the best people won't do it. This is just people being jealous. Of course, people should fight for the, the highest wage they can get. Why are you stamping on aspiration? And as soon as a group of workers who are in a, well, I'd say more valuable profession, but they're very, very qualified, very, very hardworking, we really need the best people to want to become paramedics. Like, our life depends on it, literally, right? As soon as they organize to have wages which are above the median, then suddenly, oh no, that's completely illegitimate. It's as if organized workers are only allowed to go on strike if they are really, really poor. You know, the only people who are entitled, if, if you're working class, if you're not one of the super elite, you can only ask for a pay rise if you're getting paid way below the, the national average. But if you're a banker or an MP, you're allowed to be on 80K or a banker, you're allowed to be on, you know, 2 million and still ask for more you're still allowed to change the law so that you can have a bigger bonus, right? Because that attracts people. We need to attract the best and the brightest to the city of London. So we have to take away any limits on the bonuses they can receive. What about attracting the best and the brightest to be nurses and paramedics and teachers? Because I think that's probably more important to our economy and our society than those arguments when they're made when it comes to politicians and, and bankers. So it's just, I hate the way that this, this always gets trotted out, which is that no one, no job with an above average income, the worker should be able to go on strike. Because, you know, all these super rich people, they are getting pay rises. No one else is allowed to organize to get a pay rise unless they are on minimum wage. Like it is completely inconsistent with everything they talk about aspiration and attracting the best and the brightest into key jobs. She's an idiot. Carol Malone, you're an idiot. Let's go on to our next story. Mick Lynch has been answering questions from MPs on the Transport Select Committee. It got a bit spicy, as you'd expect. This is an exchange between Lynch and Tory MP Greg Smith. I understand the perspective you're coming from, but surely you must agree that by making the railway uncertain in its operation from the eyes of the consumer, the people who pay a you lot of money. You talk about when we're on strike and when we're not on strike. When you're on strike. What about the days when we're not on strike, when it's absolutely useless as well? That's a whole other evidence. No, it's session. not. So since the timetable change that came Mr. Lynch, Mr. Lynch, it's the whole thing. The question is, you must accept that people are being driven away from the railway 
because yeah, of the uncertainty sure knowing whether it's whether it's running because whether it's on strike or not people are going back to their cars they are going to coaches they are just not traveling you know, we've seen the evidence from uk hospitality that you know the hospitality sector took an absolute bath in december when they're meant to because people couldn't get into predominantly london well, it's not a question is it but so i think it's your government's fault is my answer when you get there driving people away from the railway no you are your government what about the days when we're not on strike uh, the rail service is a nightmare then. Well, that's a whole other evidence session. It's not exactly a vote of confidence from a Conservative MP. And it's not surprising um, he didn't want to debate Lynch on the details. Now, this is Guardian analysis of the percentage of trains which were cancelled in 2022 from various key stations. Now, it's important that this is trains which were cancelled, not delayed. So, in 2022, from Manchester Oxford Road, a key, really important station, 11% of trains were cancelled. One in 10 trains were cancelled. It's also above 10% at Preston, Huddersfield, just below 10% at Manchester Piccadilly. You're seeing here, this is a disaster. I mean, how are people supposed to rely on train services if there's a one in 10 chance that the train they were going to catch is going to be cancelled? And it's also important to note that what counts as a cancelled train here, it has to have been cancelled on that day. So obviously when you have a rail strike, lots of trains are cancelled, but a rail strike, you have a lot of notice. Um, we tend to all know that the trains are going to be cancelled that day. So only included here are when there was a train which was supposed to arrive, but then on the day it's cancelled. So this cannot really include um, cancellations because of rail strikes. So you're getting one in 10 Trains from Manchester, Oxford Road, one in 10 from Preston, one in 10 from Huddersfield being cancelled. And that has nothing to do with rail strikes. This idea that, that the strike is like anti-public or anti-consumer is such a sinister Tory ploy. You know, we heard it again. We heard it in that previous segment with Carol Malone calling the strikes in the healthcare system archaic, i.e., you know, something that should be consigned to history. Um, that strikes go against the interests of the quote-unquote public, who are artificially separated from the workers. And all I can say is thank God for the strike. Like, thank God that workers have a tool that they can leverage in order to force better conditions, not just for themselves as workers, but also for us as people who use the services that they work in. Like, as someone who wants to live in a society where I can expect that a train is going to come on time or I can expect that it's not going to be cancelled or I can expect that, you know, I'm not going to be in, on a, on a four-hour train with standing room only because it was overbooked or because another train before it was cancelled. As someone who wants to know that if I call an ambulance in, you know, a normal time, that that ambulance will be able to come in a reasonable time frame and that there will be reasonable infrastructure and provisions that I will be taken care of. As someone who wants to be able to reliably use, you know, the transport system and the healthcare system, thank God that the people who actually know what needs to happen in order to make it work, um, thank God that they actually have a tool that they can use to force change. Because if they win, we all win. If they win, we have a better NHS. If they win, we have a better railway service. Because if we didn't have that tool, if workers didn't have that leveraging point, what would we be doing right now? Like we all know that the, that the NHS is not fit for purpose. We all know that the railway system is not fit for purpose. What tool would we actually have to make it better as consumers or quote unquote the public to actually bring about the change that we need. You know, we've done the petitions. We've done the article writing. We've done the protesting. It doesn't work in the way that the expression of power, the reclamation of power, that the strike can work. And so thank God for the strike. It's our only hope. Hear, hear. Totally agree with that. I mean, the, I think the only thing that can resolve the staffing crisis in the NHS, in schools, in the civil service, now they're going on strike, is if workers are successful in managing to get wages up a little bit because we've had 13 years of austerity where public sector wages have gone down 10%. Now that cannot continue and does not have a, you know, a public sector which completely collapses. So all of us depend on those strikers winning. Final story. Since Boris Johnson resigned last September, there's been something missing in my life. There's just less reason to wake up in the morning. You could say there's almost a gaping hole in my heart. Why? Well, it's because I miss Britain's most evil camp icon, 
since she stood down as Culture Secretary and Johnson's number one fan in Cabinet, we've heard less of Nadine Doris. But praise the Lord, she's back. Let's take a look. Most sane people know they were completely wrong. Nothing has gone right for us since the day they removed Boris Johnson. Mm. I think we were four to five points behind in the polls on the day he was removed. Again, as I've said, um, it's just it was easily to burn away during a general election campaign. But that has to happen. You know, Conservative MPs, as I've written this week, have one very simple question to ask themselves when they look in the mirror. And that is, do you want to continue being an MP? Um, because when we're 20 plus points behind in the polls, the vast majority of them, that's Nadine, final question. If they do want to continue being an MP, what do they need to do in one sentence? They need to, they would need to bring back Boris Johnson because there is nothing so X as an ex-MP, particularly an ex-MP who is, um, has been in government and just in the past year of opposition. No one wants to know what you have to say. No one wants to hear you, especially not the people stood next to you in the job centre queue. <laughs> there is no one so X as an ex-MP. Just you know that when you look in the mirror. I do have a soft spot for her, especially now she's out of power. What harm can she do other than, say, vaguely entertaining things on the television? Nadine Doris gave that warning just as ITV have released a new podcast documentary into Partygate. So the principal reason that Boris Johnson had to resign in the first place. Now, this is the most salacious revelation. It's from a Downing Street source who was in attendance at one of the lockdown breaking parties. So the source said this. I was working late. Some music came on. The mumbling sort of rose. And there were loads of people stood around. But this time I came out because I heard the prime minister speaking. And that's when I heard the quote. This is the most unsocially distanced party in the UK right now. So that's Boris Johnson. This is the most unsocially distanced party in the UK right now. And everyone was laughing about it. Now, that was in reference to an event in November 2020. That's the first year of COVID. We're in a lockdown. You know, that was, that was like the, the, the serious time. You know, it wasn't like after the vaccine. wasn't the sort of soft lockdowns we had when Omicron arrived. No, that was like core pandemic. This is the most unsocially distanced party in the UK right now. Whew. I really think that like Nadine Doris and Boris Johnson are low key. It's like one of the greatest like unrequited love stories of our gen- Like it's Shakespearean. <laughs> it's Shakespearean, like the obsession that this woman has. I just, I can't believe that it's like January 2023 and Nadine Doris is still caping for Boris Johnson to come back. Um, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, if Boris Johnson is prime minister again, I'm going back to where I came from, which I'm sure he would like. Boris Johnson's not going to make a comeback. He doesn't really want to. I think he probably like narrativizes the fact that it's all gotten even become even more of a shit show since he left. He probably narrativizes that in a way that puts himself in a good light. And, you know, I think all he cares about is being able to narrativize his life, some kind of Greek epic. And so I think that he's very sort of like at peace with that. But it does say a lot that, you know, when Nadine Doris can sit there and say, well, you know, everything's gotten even worse since Boris Johnson left. And, you know, it's not obviously quite accurate because I think sometimes we forget how horrendous Boris Johnson's governance during the COVID pandemic was. It says a lot that like, it's not that much of an unhinged thing to say because, you know, even though Boris Johnson talked about the bodies piling high, he had chaotic COVID governance. He was having parties during lockdowns. Still, the chaotic and cruel nature of Boris Johnson's government has continued. And it feels like it's even been compounded, um, you know, by the kind of the failure of the government to protect the public from, you know, economic, economic shocks. And what that shows is that even though Boris Johnson was rightly blamed for a lot of what happened in his premiership, It's actually not just the problem, like the issue that we're living in right now is not just the problem of one man's poor judgment or one man's mistakes. It's the product of quite a deliberate ideology of engineered failure, particularly in the public sector by the Conservative Party. When it comes to our healthcare system, when it comes to public sector wages, which is where a lot of, you know, a lot of the vulnerability in our economy currently exists, 
you know, we have to keep remembering that the Conservative Party do not believe in the concept of a public sector. So we can't look at the fact that we're in this problem and we can't look at the fact that the public sector is crumbling and think that it will just be different if we swap out one Tory for another. I know that people who watch this show probably don't believe that, but that's the kind of story that is being sold to us. That This is just a problem of one man's incompetence. But the ultimate vulnerability in our economy is a consequence of the ideological backbone of the Conservative Party, which is interested in strangling and, and forcing failure onto the public sector because they don't believe a public sector should exist. They want it to fail. They aren't interested in recuperating it and making it better. And so, you know, that's the ideology we, we live under and swapping out, you know, one man for another within that, that framework means that we're just going to continue to go down this path. And so, you know, this idea that the problems of Boris Johnson were unique to Boris Johnson, we can obviously see it's clear that that is not the case, that it, it's systemic within the Conservative Party, that they do not want the vast majority of our public sector. And therefore, a lot of the people, you know, public sector represents a really big part of the workforce. It represents the system that is supposed to care for us, educate us, you know, give us a, a, a soft place to land when we fall on hard times. They, they don't believe that that, that, that should exist. And, and that's why we're in the issue that we're in. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of Boris Johnson, I mean, he's not going to come back, essentially. I mean, you can quote me on that. If he does, I'll feel a bit silly, but whatever. I also think if he comes back, it's not going to save the Conservative Party. One reason is, I mean, the Privileged Committee is about to start. I think he's going to have to give evidence. We're going to hear a bit more about Partygate, which you know, is going to be less of headline news because he's not prime minister anymore. But if he were to have a, another significant position, that would again be a bit of a media storm. More significantly, though, and I think this is, I mean, obviously, it's because of terrible circumstances. But I feel like the one silver lining to the chaos we're seeing this winter is that people are finally talking about what really matters, the real crime, which was done to this country over the past 12 years, which was austerity, right? The real crime done to this country wasn't I mean, Brexit does seem to have been pretty bad now in terms of the consequences. But in terms of the, the real piece of self-harm, I think, was austerity. And with Boris Johnson, we were constantly talking about, you know, moral failings, we were talking about wallpaper, etc. Now, it's not that these things don't matter, but they definitely aren't the most important thing in politics, right? The most important thing in politics is how policy affects real people. And when we're talking about that, it is cuts to education, it is cuts to or a funding squeeze in the health service cuts when it, in, 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 in relation to need, et cetera, et cetera. This is what really matters. And I think in large part, because striking workers are now fighting back, it's impossible to ignore. Obviously, the, the NHS has been in dire straits for a very long time now. But because you've got nurses out on strike, because you've got ambulance workers on strike, because you're going to have junior doctors soon on strike, and because of people like Mick Lynch and the RMT, finally, we're having the discussion about wages, which we should have been having for the past 12 years, right? We're, we're finally having the conversation about public services, which has been long overdue in this country, which means that I hope the next election is going to be fought on issues of policy. And most of the public have woken up to the fact that the Tories have been terrible for your pay packet. The Tories have been terrible for your health. The Tories have been terrible for your ability to live in safe, secure housing, right? And so whoever is leader of the Conservative Party, if I was a Tory MP, I would feel much more comfortable going into the next general election with Rishi Sunak than Boris Johnson. But either way, I think they're going to lose and they're going to lose because people have woken up to the damage they have done. Um, let's wrap up there. Dahlia, pleasure to be joined by you this evening. Lovely to be joined by you too, Michael. <laughs> and thank you for watching Tisky Sour. If you are on strike or you just voted to go on strike, solidarity from all of us at Navarra Media. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.